0: You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Hey, good morning, church. If you're visiting with us, my name is Josh, and I get the great pleasure of uh, bringing a message out of the book of Exodus. Uh, We're going to be kicking off a new sermon series today entitled, The Deliverer. And so there is a handout that is at the back of the room that I want you guys to grab on your way out. Uh, The first page is kind of an overview of Exodus, talks about some of the key themes of the book, uh, and then some key truths that we want to continue to come back to throughout this series. And then on the second page, there is a reading plan. So we're going to go through uh, 19 chapters of Exodus over the next uh, 12 or so weeks, so I would encourage you before you come on Sunday, if you have the opportunity, read the text ahead of time. And then also there's some small group questions in here. So for you small group leaders, pick up one of these on the way out and uh, that'll, they'll have your questions to walk your group through over this series. So looking forward to this time together uh, in, in, in God's word. So the book of Exodus, it's an epic tale of fire, sand, wind, and water. Uh, The adventure in the book of Exodus takes place under the scorching sun behind the shadows of the great pyramids. There are two mighty nations, Israel and Egypt, both led by two great men. Moses is the liberating hero, and Pharaoh is the enslaving villain. Almost every scene throughout the book of Exodus is a visual masterpiece. There's the baby in the basket. The burning bush, the river of blood, and all the other plagues, the angel of death, the crossing of the Red Sea, the man in the wilderness, the water from the rock, the thunder and lightning on the mountain, the Ten Commandments, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the golden calf, and then ultimately the glory of the tabernacle. It's going to be an epic journey for us to walk together over the next 19, over the next 19 chapters and 12 weeks. So the book of Exodus, and uh, means exit or departure. So when the Hebrew Scriptures were translated into Greek, the verb that they used for leaving Egypt was Exodus, and eventually the word became synonymous with the book of Exodus. So then Exodus, it's a story of, uh, of an epic adventure from a group of people who go from being slaves to being rescued. And as we study the book and we watch these people come out of their slavery and into salvation and into encountering God, my hope for us as a church is that we are going to do the exact same thing. We desperately need an encounter with God. Many of you in here, uh, like myself, have been Christians for much of your life. And I think our relationship with God has become a little dull at times. I, think, no, I can't think of a better way to just be reminded of how incredible God is than opening up His Word and walking on this adventure together. This church needs to encounter God. We have been together many years as a church community. And I think 2019 is going to be a year for us to radically encounter the living God. He is no less active today than than he's going to be in these stories of these texts. So as we walk through it, we're going to encounter God in the text. But my hope for us as a church is that we will encounter God in real life. So how do we do this in the book of Exodus? Like what's the best way to study Exodus? Because it has a bunch of different themes, a bunch of different directions that we could go in. Some of the themes in the book, you've got salvation, covenant, worship, Holiness, creation, divine initiative, and human agency. Lots of different themes. But as I was studying the text and as we talked as elders, there's one main theme that that outshines all of them. It's deliverance. As we study the book of Exodus together, you're going to see one hero. And that hero is God. God is going to be the one who reveals himself to Moses as the great I Am. God is the one who hears the cries of His people in bondage and takes pity on their suffering, raising up a deliverer to save them. God's the one who's going to bring the plagues on Egypt. God's the one who's going to divide the Red Sea. God's the one that's going to drown Pharaoh's army. God is going to be the one who provides bread from heaven and water from the rock. God is going to be the one who's going to give the law and the covenant on the mountain. God's going to be the one that's going to fill the glory of the tabernacle. So from beginning to end, Exodus is about God. So therefore, for us to read the book is to encounter the living God. This book's going to be about His mercy and His justice and His holiness and His glory. He's the one who rules history by His sovereign power. He's the one who saves people. He's the one who invites them into a covenant relationship. When you look at the Exodus and referred to in the rest of the Bible, people re, uh, re, the biblical writers rarely ever talk about Moses. What they look back on the Exodus, they see it and they talk about God. So this gives us an idea of the proper way that we're to study this book and what we're to pay close attention to. Because we're going to learn a lot about the character of God. So then Exodus is simply an exercise in theology. The study of of God. So let's do that together. And we're going to do it in the opening verses of Exodus 1, through 1-5. Just stay seated for now. I'm going to have you guys stand up. I just want to do a little bit of intro, and then we'll read our main text. So here's how the book of Exodus starts, verses 1-5, through and the words are up here on the screen. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came, came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And then it says in verse 5 all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. You guys know that any great story has a great backstory. And the author of Exodus, in those opening lines, is giving us the backstory to this epic tale. The twelve tribes of Israel are listed in like a formal way because it's meant to preface some momentous event that's about to come. In. It's like it's like reading the genealogy in Matthew one. There's something great that's about to come. So in the opening text of Exodus here, the stage is set for an epic story. From the very beginning, it's apparent that these people listed have a a destiny. They have a history. And Exodus begins the way every epic typically begins, right in the middle of things. The adventure's already underway. If we were to read this out of the Hebrew Bible, Exodus 1 would start with the word and. And that's meant to connect it back to Genesis. So Genesis and Exodus are actually meant to be read as one continuing story. Technically, all five books of the beginning of the New Testament, of the beginning of the Old Testament are meant to be read as one book. It's called the Torah. Uh, by the Jewish community. But that's how you're supposed to read it. It's one continuing story. So before the Israel, Israelites are going to be rescued up out of Egypt, we have to find out how they got there in the first place. And by simply rattling off these names, by talking about Joseph and Egypt, all of a sudden the, the narrative of Genesis comes flooding back to us, doesn't it? We, we, we remember this, this epic tale of what God had done throughout the book of Genesis. Remember Joseph? He was the first member of his family to actually enter into Egypt. He was the favorite son, the apple of his father's eye, but also the one that was betrayed by his brothers. In a fit of of jealous rage, they sold him into slavery. But God was with Joseph, and God exalted Joseph to a position of authority. He became a prince inside of Egypt. When his family later, in a time of famine, sought to seek food, it's Joseph who was able to give his brothers the bread. And then from there, the whole family winds up settling in the Nile Delta. Well, the irony of the whole story is that the the, the families of the men who sold their brother into slavery will wind up themselves into slavery under the Egyptian lords in Egypt. When you think back, on the last part of Genesis, those, those 12 sons of Israel, they, they weren't very likely heroes. You know, In, in fact, the, the more that we learned about their family in the book of, of, of Genesis, we can actually say that I'm pretty amazed that God even chose those people. I want all the people to choose. I mean, why them? They, they didn't have a whole lot going for them. They weren't a very large family. It says that there was only 70 of them in the beginning. They weren't very powerful. Uh, Joseph rose to a position of authority, but the positions in Egypt uh, were hereditary. And so after Joseph died, it's not like the next of kin moved into his position. They were strangers living in a strange land. And, And you don't get the impression that they were especially bright, especially compared to the Egyptians. I mean, the Egyptians were masters of technology and of history, invaders that took over other lands. Nor could this family claim to even be any more righteous than anybody else. They were pretty dysfunctional. Their history, it's a sordid tale of treachery and violence. Their father Jacob had betrayed his brother Esau by tricking him out of his birthright. And then like father-like sons, Jacob's sons had then tricked Joseph. The most despicable of all the stories is the story of Judah. Judah who does this lewd sexual act with one of his family members? Right? These people were sinful. They were broken. But Joseph and his brothers had one thing, one really good thing that was going for them, and that was their God. Among all the other gods, their God was Jehovah. And man, when you think back on the story, what a God they had. Not only was He the God of Jacob, but He was the God of, of Abraham. He was the God of Isaac. He was the God of the everlasting covenant who had turned what they meant for evil, like selling Joseph into slavery, into something good. In Exodus, the God is described as the Lord of the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. See, when that God is on your side, there's anything can be accomplished. You can pass through deep waters and be unharmed while a thousand enemies are drowned at the sea and a blaze of glory comes upon the mountain. See, however simple or basic these people might have seemed, they had a relationship with God and their God was on their side with all of His promises. He had given the Israelites some pretty amazing promises, and one of them comes true, or had come true, in our text today. In Exodus verse six, look at what it, verse one, one verse six. Look at what it says. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. I mean, think about that. This, this small, fairly small family of 70 people, 400 years later, has turned into a gigantic nation of over possibly 2 million people. God had fulfilled His promise. He told Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will confirm My covenant between Me and you and I will greatly increase your numbers. God had given Abraham two uh, two promises. One was uh, a seed, uh, a great family, and then possession of land. Here in our text, we see that the promise of the seed is fulfilled. They have become a great nation. All that remains is for God to bring them to a special place that He told He would give to Abraham, and that they could call their own. Therefore, He's got to get them out of Egypt. Here begins the story of the Exodus. And I want to invite you guys to stand with me as I read Exodus 1 verses 18 8 through 22. Now there rose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities of Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other one Pua, when you, see, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. It did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we, we want to encounter You. And we want to do that through Your Word. We believe it is, it is the, the clearest revelation of who You are. But my request to you would be that as we open up your word once again and we walk through it, that this wouldn't just be a story. It wouldn't just be entertaining. It wouldn't just be an, an epic adventure. But it would be real. And the God in, in, in you who we encounter in the text would be the same God that we encounter every day. Would you just, would you just move in us? Would your spirit move in us? Would be reminded of how great you are? We'd ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys, have a seat. Satan likes uh, nothing better than to torment the people of God. I think it's what he spends the majority of his time doing. And in our text, we see that Satan uses Pharaoh to persecute the Israelites for their faith. But I think one of the most important things that we learn in the text today is that God had a purpose in the people's suffering. He had something that He wanted them to learn through their suffering. Now, God allows many different reasons for His people to suffer hardship. But one of the, ones that we see, one of the reasons that we see here in the text is because He wants them to grow. We see in verse 12 that it says, "...the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread." the irony is exactly the opposite of what Pharaoh had hoped would happen. In verse 10, Pharaoh says, "Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply." But in verse 12, God says, "The more they were multiplied, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied." In the Hebrew, this is kind of a play of words. It's a, it's a pun. It, it means that the, the joke was on Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, I'm sure, had always prided himself on his political astuteness. He was known to be a great leader. That's why he says, we must deal shrewdly with the Israelites. What Pharaoh means by dealing shrewdly is the same thing that every ruler means when he tries to use people to his advantage. Sometimes it's military strength. Sometimes it's exploiting the, the poor. And sometimes it's attacking minorities. But the amazing thing about God is the conventional wisdom of man, the way that, that man thinks a goal is going to be accomplished, is not the same as God. Because Pharaoh is dealing with the God who says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligence. I will frustrate. So by keeping the Israelites enslaved, the new Pharaoh was actually Helping God accomplish exactly what He wanted. And that was a close-knit community of His followers. I mean, think about it. If the Israelites had been left to themselves, they would have just kind of melted and absorbed into the the Egyptian race. They would have lost their identity as a people of God. But remember, God had a special plan for these people. Although they were content to be in Egypt, and, and I think they were quite willing to be Egyptianized, Yet, the whole time, God was working on this plan to bring them out. They must be a separate people. They could not be like the Egyptians. They couldn't live like the Egyptians because Jehovah, the great I Am, had chosen them to be a special people. He meant to make a a, a difference, an example of them from the rest of the world. I think it's important for us just to stop. And in the opening book of Exodus we learn a powerful truth about the nature of God. And it's this. The Deliverer does not always deliver when we think He should. Think about that in your own journey. To cry out for God to deliver, to remove suffering, but yet to not be delivered. It's kind of wild to think that That God led those people into Egypt, but then He he had them suffer there. But His suffering had a purpose. Suffering is never wasted time on God's people, because God is always at work doing 10,000 things you and I will probably never even realize. God delivered His people by leading them to Egypt. He used Egypt to preserve them, and now He's going to lead them out. Another reason why God allows suffering is because He wants to show people their need for salvation. It says that God saw the suffering of His people and then He delivered them. You know, God could have prevented the Israelite suffering, but He didn't. Why? Why? Because if he didn't, the Israelites would have never desired to leave Egypt. I mean, when you think about this story, it's going to be hard enough to get them to leave even when they're suffering. Egypt was the only home they'd ever known, and it was not without its luxuries. It was the greatest kingdom on earth at that time. So it took suffering and bondage to make God's people cry out for something greater. This is the amazing thing about the way that God works. I mean, the joke truly is on Pharaoh. The more he oppressed them, the more they long for freedom. This is the exact opposite of what he was trying to do. This teaches us another important lesson about the character of God. Suffering helps us look to a Savior. Church, if we never have any suffering along the journey we will never have any need to look to God. Like the Israelites, we need help. We need to be delivered to the promised land. It's hard for us to also leave aside the treasures of the world. These things that we've worked our whole life to accomplish. So God many times will take something away to give us something greater to long to and to long for. A new heavens and a new earth. That's why our lives many times are not comfortable. Our suffering helps us look to salvation. Well, eventually, God is going to deliver His people out of bondage. But before things get better in our text, they get a whole lot worse. Much worse. So when Pharaoh realizes that his strategy of bringing the Israelites under control has backfired, and that the population is growing by leaps and bounds, he comes up with a new strategy. He goes from suffering to making the people slaves and suffering to slaughter. And when he does that, he becomes a true enemy of God. Because God had a plan to make a great nation. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name was Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew woman in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him, and if it's a girl, let her live. Pharaoh issues a death warrant on the Jewish people. And when he does that, he attempts to countermand God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply. He told his people to fill the earth. But more than that, what Pharaoh is doing is is attempting to deny God's promises of a Savior. From the very day that Adam and Eve had sinned, in Genesis 3.15, God promised to bring about a Savior. It would be an offspring of the woman. It would be a son who would crush Satan's head. God's people trusted in that promise. They were waiting for a Messiah to one day come. So whether Pharaoh knew it or not, he was the seed of the serpent in Genesis And God promised that the serpent would one day be destroyed by the woman's seed. There's also a a greater analogy here in the text of not just salvation out of a particular place, but, but I believe salvation for all of our souls. See, Pharaoh had two strategies for preventing God's people from growing. First, it was slavery, and second, it was death. And this is exactly the same way that Satan works. First, He tries to destroy human beings. He leads, sin leads us to slavery. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Then once we are, we are sins to slavery, Romans, says, the, Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death. What we all need is exactly what the Israelites needed. A Savior to deliver us from slavery. Someone to come in and, and rescue us from death by destroying our enemy. Now God, He's going to provide a Savior for the Israelites in Moses. That's where our story picks up here at the beginning of chapter 2. A humble baby placed in a basket and floated down the Nile River will be raised to be a prince in Egypt, cast out, and will come back to save His people. But greater than that, We know that one day, a Jewish couple fleeing for the life of their baby, just like Moses' mom. This time they're going to flee to Egypt to escape from Herod. They're going to later come out when the the king dies. And Jesus is going to grow to be the true Savior that all of humanity will need. Once we were all under bondage to sin, But we were saved. Jesus brought us liberty and life. But notice what happens here in the story. It's a really interesting turn. Pharaoh goes to the midwives. He tells them to kill the the sons when they're born. But look at what the midwives say to Pharaoh. I mean, when you think about it, it was was an act of civil disobedience. Pharaoh gave the, the midwives a direct order and they disobeyed it. But I believe this is what God's people always do when the law of man tries to contradict the law of God. Our first allegiance is always to God. In the New Testament, Peter and the other apostles in Acts will say, we must obey God first rather than men. And there are times that all of us are going to face, I believe it's going to be times when we are at the same time suffering and being persecuted, that we're going to have to make a choice. And that choice is, will I obey God or will I obey man? And how you respond to that choice will tell you truly who's God in your life. Who do you truly fear? So by refusing to follow Pharaoh's orders, Shifra and Puah, I believe become the heroes of this story. The reason these women had the courage to do such a splendid, beautiful thing is that they just feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. Think about that. Pharaoh was the most powerful man alive at that time. I mean, a, a simple wave of his hand, and he could have had them executed on the spot. Yet Shifra and Pua dared to risk their lives because they feared God. They understood that obeying God was actually the safest thing they could possibly do in that moment. They did what Christ said. You should fear the one, he says, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can also kill the soul. Well, Pharaoh, who's not used to having his orders denied, he summons these midwives to himself and he says, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Well, Pharaoh puts these two ladies in a really precarious situation. If they tell him the truth, They're definitely going to get killed. So notice what the women say in the text. It's really clever. They say Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwives arrive. Now, the implication was that by the time the midwives arrived, the family had already welcomed the child, and there was no way secretly to put him to death. Now, if you've got two million people, you've got a lot of babies being born. If you've got two women as the midwives for two million people, it's going to be really difficult, right? Well, they they were not the only midwives in Egypt, but most likely they were the midwives over all of Egypt. They were the the head nurses in the the ward over everybody else. They were giving out the commands. They were denying Pharaoh. And so they come up with this really clever lie. Now, whatever ethical conclusion you have about this lie, we can call it an act of civil of creative disobedience. But what they did and what they said actually satisfied Pharaoh. Which is pretty amazing, right? It shows you that God is powerfully at work in this story. But more than satisfying Pharaoh, what they did is that they pleased God. Even though they did something that you could consider a lie. Now, in a story... The best way to tell whether or not a person has done the right thing is to look at the outcome. What happens to them? Well, God blesses them for their obedience to their faith. It says God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families of their own. By the blessing of God, Pharaoh's attempt to control the population ended up making the Israelites even more numerous. Pharaoh is outsmarted again. This time by a pair of midwives. And God blesses them by giving them a family. We don't know how. It could be through marriage or childbirth or adoption. The Bible doesn't say. But it proves that it's much better to obey God than to fear anyone else. Church, we're going to continue on this journey with God this year. And many, many thousands of years after this story was written. Satan is no less active today than he was back then. And I believe that he is going to attack this year even more than he ever has. But I believe a more powerful truth that God is going to deliver us. I pray that as, as, as we prepare ourselves for another year of being followers of Christ, as we look to suffering, we would also look to a God who delivers. And as we go through those times of trial and of suffering, we're going to continue to go back to the Gospel. And we're to remind ourselves that this is not just a God that worked to a group of people all these years ago, but it's a God who... Who saved all of us, who delivered all of us. And as you go through suffering this year, I pray you will go back to that moment when God saved you. Not just saved you from your circumstances, but saved you from your sin. He delivered you. Let that be the motivation to continue to press on, to not grow weary, and to not grow tired. And when those moments of suffering come, look to God. What is it that He's trying to teach you in that moment? Is it to trust in Him? Maybe He's taking something away because He wants to provide something else. Maybe there's something about His character and His nature that He wants to teach you and He's going to do that through suffering. But let's remember that during those times when it's hard and we can't see what the future holds, there's a reality and there's a peace that comes to the Christian life. That God is truly doing 10,000 things that you may never even realize. He's a good God. He has a good plan. He's a powerful God. He's a marvelous God. He holds all things in His hands. We're going to spend some time now responding to that God in communion and to worship. Communion is, is just a, a, a beautiful picture of deliverance. And I pray as you guys come to the table, you be reminded that you were once delivered. Paul says that we were all in darkness. We were all in bondage. But God came to us and through Jesus, He purchased us. That's what communion represents. And as you take the bread, I want you to remember that no matter how Satan attacks you in some other way in your life, whether it's through your sin or whether it's through the sin of somebody else, God will use the people who have authority over us to sin against us but there is someone greater out there who has a good plan. Let's lean into that God. Let's encounter Him. Let's respond now in worship and communion to Him. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before You as a a mighty benevolent God. For many of us in this room, uh, You at one point opened our eyes to see that we were sinners and that we needed You. You did something that we could not do on our own. And in that moment, we believe the blood of Jesus was placed upon us, and we moved from being creation to child. And in that moment, we received all of the promises that you have ever given your people. The same promises that apply here in the text apply to us today. So I pray those promises would just wash over us. that when suffering does come, we would look to You and we would hold steadfast. At the same time, Father, I would ask that You continue to deliver Your people. You said that You would. You know what's going on in our lives. You know the suffering that we're under. Whether it's relational or financial. Maybe it's because of our faith. Deliver Your people. And in soul we respond and worship to you. But Father, there are also those of us in here who, who don't know you. And I would ask that you would open up our hearts to believe in the God of this, of this text, the God who can usurp a king. The God who has a a, a bigger plan. A God who can even redeem suffering. A God who's benevolent and loving, that desires for all to come to Him. Would you open up our hearts to believe in You? We'd ask this in Your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.